0: Good morning again, if we haven't met, my name is Taylor Leachman. I'm the pastor of Family Ministries here at Christ the King and it's a joy to get to continue uh, studying through um, our series here on Ephesians as we're nearing the end of it in chapter six. But um, before we get to that, uh, this past week I read an article that quoted, I thought, a really fascinating statistic uh, from the Pew Research Center. It said that only 37% of Americans find pastors to be honest and ethical. On the list of trustworthiness uh, related to professions, it puts pastors slightly ahead of journalists and bankers and behind pharmacists and funeral directors. And so as I read that particular uh, statistic, I began to wonder first, how did pastors become so infamous? Even this last week on vacation, I was playing with my daughters in the pool, and a kid came up and asked what I do for a living, and I said, I'm a pastor. He goes, oh, you must have made bad grades in school. I said, oh, um, <laughs> thank you. Uh, out of the mouth of babes. Uh, So how did pastors fall into such cultural infamy? And second, how has uh, the pastoral view affected the culture's view of both the church and Jesus himself? They're related. I think that there are all sorts of negative examples that we can point to either in our own personal lives or that we've seen uh, in the public sphere uh, uh, of proven truths to the statistics from pastors exemplifying greed to those who've had pretty public uh, falls from grace. But I I think the statistic makes sense in light of what we've been studying through in the book of Ephesians. Up until this point, Paul has reminded the church over and over and over again about the preeminence of Christ in their life. And because Jesus Christ is preeminent in their life, they are therefore to submit all things to him. And then to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And it's a life lived that way that's supposed to show the reputation of Christ positively to the world. So I want us to keep that in mind as we read this section here in Ephesians chapter 6. as Paul is giving us that reminder this morning. He's going to give us a command and a metaphor that's going to feel pretty familiar to us. But I want us to read it in light of our own, uh, our own lives lived before a watched world. So let's read this together. Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. This is Paul writing. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Would y'all pray with me? Father, we do thank you. We thank you for Paul's bold gospel proclamation. And we pray, Lord, that as we consider your words this morning, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, when we come to a passage like this one this morning that feels really familiar to us, it's easy, uh, it's easy to hear the exact same things that we've always heard when we come to it. Right, we hear things like, well, uh, Joe or Jane Christian, you are to put on the armor of God. And when we put this on individually, we're putting on virtues or spiritual disciplines that are going to help us in our own spiritual growth with Jesus, when I was a youth director at All Saints in Austin, one of the schools where most of, uh, of my kids uh, went used to put a Bible verse on all of their athletic t-shirts. Um, and, and that particular year, the football team put one of the verses from this passage. They put Ephesians 6.12 on their shirts. It said, "...for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness." And it wasn't the worst application on their part. They're trying to draw a parallel between the teamwork and the struggle of getting better at football with the struggle that we all have in living the spiritual life. Not a bad application. But what that type of interpretation does is it assumes so much about this passage that Paul is not saying. Right? It's easy to make this about virtual living or virtuous living or, or fighting the culture wars or, um, or, or beating back uh, demons in spiritual warfare. But Paul is saying something bigger than that, right? He says, be strong in the Lord, put on the whole armor of God. And, you know, he's not talking to you and to me as individuals, all right, yes, there are some things that we need to individually learn to grow in grace and to become more like Jesus. Absolutely, I'm not denying any of that, but these commands, be strong and put on the armor of God, are in the second person plural. So in Southern, he is saying, all y'all be strong in the Lord, right? He's saying, all y'all put on the armor of God. So what does it look like for us to do that as a community? What does it look like for us to do that as the church together? That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. And we're going to do so by kind of refamiliarizing ourselves with the passage and looking at three distinct things. First, we're going to look at our reason that we need to be strong. So the enemy. Then who is our Savior? And then finally, what is our charge? So the enemy, the Savior, and the charge. Let's first look at our enemy. It's really important what Paul says here at the beginning. He says that the church, the people of God, do not wrestle against flesh and blood. It's not people that are the enemy. It's not the things even in this world that are the enemy. It's not politicians. It's not people of other religions or even the person in your life that has been the worst to you. All those people or people groups are not the enemy here. No, he says that our fight is against the cosmic powers that are over this present darkness. The enemy is Satan and the demonic forces. And for some of you, as we begin this type of talk of of demons and Satan, you're probably getting a little bit nervous. And that's understandable because the church has either overstated or understated uh, the, the demonic influence in our lives. Right? We've overstated and seen devils and, and demons as being far too much kind of behind every single shadow, behind every cough that distracts during a prayer, right? That's a demon that's making that happen, right? Or we think too little of it. We've almost begun to view, uh, to, to view evil or to view the, the devil as some impersonal force, right? Uh, treating it almost as if, myth, as if it's mythology, We know now what the cause of a seizure is. We know now what the cause of schizophrenia is. And we understand it on a physiological level. So therefore, we write off all that has been said about demons and about Satan beforehand. But the Bible is clear. The Bible is clear that Satan is real. And Satan is personal. Personal. He's not a fallen god or a demi god. He's not almost as powerful as Jesus, the Man God Himself. No, he is a fallen angel, right? like like Michael or like Gabriel. So he's not all powerful, but he is powerful. He's more powerful than you and me. And the enemy wants to attack the church or at least to distract us from our first love, from our love and and devotion to God himself. And he wants to turn our attention toward hatred of one another as well. The enemy does a good job of that. One of the, the best tricks of the enemy is to confuse us about who the enemy truly is. And historically, the church has had a really tough time with that. We've taken this passage and been overly combative and militarized in in a really negative way. Think the Crusades or in a much more subtle way and kind of the the take back America politics of the church. Or if it isn't a militaristic or triumphalistic conflict, the same temptation to view other people or, or people groups as the enemy exists in all of us. Within the church itself, we've made, we've made enemies out of those who differ on, on, uh, on the policies about COVID. We've made enemies out of those who have a different theological view or different philosophy of ministry from ourselves. You know, other Christians are not the enemy. Other people are not the enemy. Vanquishing other people who think differently from us is not the answer, right? When we misidentify the enemy, it becomes that much easier to misapply who the Savior is and what our charge is. So let's look second at our Savior. The armor of God, as I mentioned before, it's tempting to make it about the things that Christians are to do as we put it on. Right? We think that these are virtues that are supposed to be lived out. Right? I need to fasten my belt of truth. I need to put on my breastplate of righteousness. Or I, I even need to make sure that that thing is a little bit more protective from the arrows that are coming in my direction. I need to, to polish and, and patch up my shield of faith. But when we view it that way, we tend to see ourselves as the saviors in our own story. We want to put on these pieces of armor because we think that these things are the things that we can accomplish, that we can do. I can learn the truth. I can study God's truth and defend God's truth. I can surround myself with righteousness and maybe live a little bit more righteously. Or at least I can kind of like ignore or avoid the unrighteous people that I see around. Or I can nurture my faith. I can listen to more sermons and pray more. These are things that it feels like we can do. And some of these things, there's wisdom there. But in the list in Ephesians 6 is not about something that we're supposed to do. Because if it were, then how do we accomplish the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit? We do not create our own salvation. Right? Perhaps we can act like our own saviors at times. But salvation belongs to the Lord. It is from Jesus Christ. We don't yield or wield the, the, the spirit around like a sword, telling the Holy Spirit what to do and where to go. No, the armor is not something that we're to do to improve ourselves. It is right and it is good. But even more than that, it's not just a metaphor that Paul kind of makes up out of his own. He's not looking at a Roman soldier from the jail and thinking, ah, oh, you know, there's a, there's a breastplate. It's righteousness. Or there's a helmet. It's, it's salvation. No, this is actually an Old Testament reference from Isaiah chapter 59. In the passage, Isaiah is bemoaning the fact that there is no Savior present to come and to relieve them from their exile. And it's a prophetic vision of one who is to come. He says this. God saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation. And his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing. And he wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Isaiah is describing the Messiah here, the one who has come, and Paul is picking up on this passage, and he's referencing the very same armor of God that the Messiah put on. He's telling us to put it on. We, as the church, are supposed to put on that very same armor, so what does that mean for us? Well, First, it means that we're not our own saviors. We cannot win victories against Satan and against demons. And in fact, it's it's not up to us to do so. We are rather to dress up and to put on Christ like armor. In fact, we put on Christ because in Christ, the victory is already won. In Christ, his death and his resurrection, Satan has been defeated. They haven't yet been destroyed he and his minions, but they have been defeated. And that has sent them into a scurry, into a scurry trying to, uh, trying to dissuade the influence of the gospel power of Jesus Christ. Right, They're trying to tempt us in the exact same way that Jesus was tempted in the desert, to be tempted by earthly power and authority, to be tempted by earthly abundance and comfort, to be tempted to, get, to doubt God and to doubt his goodness to us. We, we view each other as the enemy and we view ourselves as the good insofar as we listen to the attacks of the enemy. But knowing that these are Satan's weapons, Paul tells us to put on Christ, the very one who defeated them. Jesus Christ is the armor of God. He is truth incarnate. He is righteousness incarnate, the prince of peace. He is the object of our faith. He is salvation, so we put him on. And second, what Paul is saying here is that the church, all of the church, over the whole world, the people of God, we become Jesus' physical presence in this world until he comes again. We become the body of Christ. We are the ones who wear the armor that is Christ And as we put him on, we embody him to the world, to Houston here in 2021. So we're to serve as he served, to preach as he preached, and to pray as he prayed. And experientially, we all kind of understand this to be true, that that the church is meant to be the embodiment of Christ in the world because how many of us have a loved one, a family member perhaps, that has been turned off to Jesus or the church? because of a negative interaction that they've had with another Christian. Probably all of us have. As we embody Christ to the world, we need to live like Christ in the world. And chiefly, I want for us to think about this as it relates to all of us who are in a position of authority in the church. And that, that, frankly, is any adult in this room, and maybe even some of you children. If you lead a Bible study, if you teach your children about the Bible at nighttime, all the way to a pastor, that is you that I'm talking to. As we think about putting on Christ, we need to be reminded that Christ was never about making kind of grandiose gestures and moves for influence to spread the gospel. He never used other people for his ministry. He never used the powerful or the wealthy to gain a bigger foothold for his mission, nor did he use his own power to reveal himself to all of the earth. No, he came in a weak and a small way to demonstrate the very power of God. And this is so antithetical to the way that most American Christians and most uh, uh, of the American church live. We trust the big and the exciting Right, we want big conversions and displays of the power of the gospel. We want Christians in places of influence and power so uh, that, that, that we can get more bang for our buck, so to speak. We buy into the lie sometimes, even that the ends justify the means of our ministries. But Jesus' ministry was never about the fanfare, it was never about the biggest bang for buck. It was incarnational and local, it was relational. And it was utterly sacrificial. And as we get closer to the launch of the new ministry year, let us put on the armor of God. Let us put on Christ. And as we do so, let us us live and let us minister in those same means. That our end goal may be the same end goal of Christ. That the world would encounter Jesus. Not encounter our influence or or our, you know, kind of, Uh, desires but rather encounter Jesus so how do we do this what's what's the charge that we have When I was a kid, about five years before I ever began playing tackle football, I really wanted a set of football pads for Christmas. Um, And and like most kids who ask for it and get it, it's not like I wanted to wear the pads so that I could read books in the football pads. I wasn't going to like show up for a nice family dinner in football pads. No, a kid wants football pads so he can put them on and hit things with it, right? Right. And so when we read a passage like this to put on all of the armor of God, we think something similar. I wanna put on the armor of God so that I can do something with it. I'm on fire for God, so I now need to put on the armor so I can hit some people with some biblical truth, right? That's sort of the way that we embrace this type of passage. But that's not what Paul is saying here. What is the charge? He says, we're to put on the armor of God so that we can pray. We're to be a people that pray. Paul ends this section with an admonition of prayer. And how does that fit with what we're saying this morning? Simply this, that prayer is talking to God about the things that are going on in our life. It's talking to God about uh, uh, what we need and acknowledging that we're not as strong as we think we are, we are not our own saviors. When we pray, we are asking God to act, and we're acknowledging that he has already acted. We're putting him back as the central authority in our own lives. A community that believes itself to be a savior is a community that struggles to pray. And truthfully, we all struggle to pray a little bit, particularly in this community, right? We, we, pray, we struggle to pray because it's too easy to buy into the lie that we're good enough, we're smart enough, and gosh darn, people, people like us, right? But the posture, posture of prayer is an act of faith itself. So one very practical application for us. Between now and August 21st, which is the ministry launch, Let's pray daily for the church and, and pray for these four things. Pray that Christ the King would seek faithfulness over fruitfulness and influence. That we would be faithful as God has called us to be faithful. Second, pray that we would put on Christ as we embody him to our neighborhood and to our city. Third, pray that we would be a people who submit to one another out of reverence for Christ as the passage in Ephesians up to this point has reminded us. And fourth, let's pray big. Let's pray for all of the saints as Paul directs us here. Pray for all of the church that we would all embody Christ to the watching world. About five years ago, I was at a park with my oldest two children and, uh, and a young teenage boy, about 13, came dressed up as Captain America. He, it was not Halloween, and he was much too old probably to be dressed up uh, uh, like this. But what I loved about it is that he didn't show up as, um, you know, as Stephen, we'll make up his name, as Stephen wearing Captain America garb. No, he showed up as Captain America. He was walking around looking for bad guys like Captain America, right? He was mimicking all of the movements that he'd seen in comic books and in television. He was being Captain America. Brothers and sisters, what if we put on Christ in the same way? What if we not only put on his saving grace that we might individually know of his goodness, but so that the world around us might taste and see that it is good too? What if Americans began to trust pastors and the church more because they found what God's people were like, that we are intended to be gracious, that we're people who are intended to be faithful, people of prayer, not power, grace, not greed. Right? Jesus is our Savior. And as we put him on, we put him on not to conquer other people and not to, uh, to make others the enemy but rather rather the fight against the very temptations that the evil one has for us, to become just like everyone else. But let us fight against that. Put on Jesus Christ, the one who died for you and the one who loves you. Let's pray to that end. Our God and our Father, we do thank you. Well, we thank you for the love that we have in Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that you would, by the power of your spirit, make us a people who put him on. Put him on as we trust and rely upon him for salvation. But, Father, put him on as we go about living in this world. Father, we thank you that you are with us and that you are for us. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.